Hello, I'm Sam, and opposite me is Tim. Welcome back to the Classical Music Pod. This week we continue our selection of audible classical treats. We've got the Spice Girls, we've got the Southbank Symphonia, we've got a mid-concert sneeze. Bless you. All on this, the birthday of Cole Porter. Congratulations to Stephen Clearbury. Yes, he has received a KBE, a knighthood, for his 37 years as Director of Music at King's College, Cambridge. In September, he will be replaced by Britain's tallest choir director, Dan Hyde. Mm, I wonder if Mr Hyde will introduce female choristers into the choir at King's. What do you think? Opinions have changed on that matter since Clearbury took over, and I think it would be a very progressive step, Tim. Another figure on the British choral scene is having some trouble, though, Tim. Paul Meller who is the Aberdeen University professor who composed Ubi Caritas et Amor for the 2011 wedding of Prince William and Kate Middleton, has told a local Aberdeen paper last week that he would be taking a break from leading his choir to deal with mental health and alcohol addiction issues. He said, Taking a leave of absence from the university for several weeks has allowed me to reflect upon the pressures I have faced and the ways in which I have been dealing with them. Regrettably, alcohol has become more of a crutch to me than it should and this has been adversely affecting my life and my work. Certainly not the only musician uh, I've encountered who is using alcohol as a bit of a crutch. Indeed, and I think that it's actually something that is often underreported in the classical mm. world. Yeah, coping mechanisms, ways that people handle the lifestyle and pressure of performing. Mm-hmm. There doesn't seem to be a great deal of support for it at the moment. If you are aware of anything that uh, could help musicians struggling with that kind of thing then please do get in touch with us and we will publicize it further far better news over in philadelphia where the philadelphia symphony orchestra have been given a 50 million dollar gift from the silicon valley community foundation or anonymous members from within the foundation right so is that all the people who work at google and stuff like that i assume so but they don't want people knowing who they are exactly no data on them Cool. Well, Yannick Nezetsagun, one of our biggest fans, the big cat man, Cats. Uh, is <laughs> saying, In all that we do, the musicians of the orchestra and I seek to create joy through music. With this tremendous support, we look forward to sharing that joy widely and in new groundbreaking ways in the communities of Philadelphia. For those of you that don't follow Yannick on social media, you should, and, uh, you should for a start. But also, uh, he ha- he's a big presence. Yeah, He's really popular. And I think... This might have something to do with the traction that this orchestra are getting and the mm. amount of funding they are managing to pull in. So if anybody is doubting the value of having a social media profile and let this be an example of why you are wrong. Yeah, get on the case, Hiroshi. <laughs> One orchestra that is not having such luck this year is the Baltimore Symphony. Their management has abruptly announced the cancellation of the orchestra's summer programming. Yeah, despite being conducted by Marin Orsop, who does maintain a very high profile, they've decided to cut their performing season from 52 weeks to 40, and that cancellation occurs just weeks after the BSO announced its summer schedule and began accepting reservations for it. Mm, the shortening of the performance season will result in nearly 20% losses of pay, 
and a shortened vacation time for the musicians who've all been working without a contract since January. That's quite a long time now. Citing over $16 million in losses incurred by the orchestra over the last decade, the BSO's CEO and president, Peter Kiome, said that if the BSO is going to survive, our business model needs to change, and that change begins in earnest today. He will have lacked a little bit of authority because he was pictured at a recent concert with his fingers in his ears. Mm, he looked really distressed, which either says there's something really bad about the BSO or his appreciation of classical music. What are the two? One man who does seem to appreciate American classical music is Democratic candidate Bill de Blasio. The New York Mayor's Office of Media and Entertainment, MOM, is, is investing $500,000 in grants to local female musicians in an effort to support music made by and for women in a male-dominated industry. Good idea. That's the two guys doing a classical music podcast. <laughs> Sorry to ladies. Lang Lang. Lang Lang. Lang 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 Lang. Congratulations to Lang Lang on his glamorous wedding to the fellow pianist and composer Gina Alice Redlinger. The Chinese media reported that the couple's ceremony took place at a hotel in Paris, followed by a banquet at the Palace of Versailles. The New York Post writes... Marie Antoinette might have considered the whole thing slightly over the top. We're told 300 guests, including John Legend and Chrissy Teigen, and Her Royal Highness Prince and Princess Michael, and is she the racist, the one with the racist brooch? I don't know. I think it might be. Uh, were treated to a bark recital by the newlyweds and a seven-course meal, including a transparency of lobster. Uh, which <laughs> I uh, do you I'm think a- that's just a cheap lobster? Just, it, it, yeah, a you, flavourless lobster. You haven't served them anything. And yeah. You tell them that it's on the plate. It's like the you em- just can't see it. The emperor's new clothes. The emperor's new lobster. There was also an eight-foot-tall wedding cake accompanied by two Dom Perignon vintages. So jolly good to you, Mr. Lang Lang. Good All that playing you. on Paul Dark has done you the world of good. Mm. I didn't know he played on Paul Dark. Goosebumps at the ready. Headphones in. We're entering the world of... ASMR, Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response. Classic FM have produced a slightly bizarre selection of ASMR videos using a violin, a saxophone, a tambourine, and a woman whispering Italian musical terms. I hear too much lip. It's horrible. I can hear it's quite... Quite wet in the mouth. Oh, it's horrible. But anyway, inspired by this, we decided to have our own go at creating some ASMR content. Sonata form, sempre fortissimo, schneller. Sehr gut. Marketing, bandwagon content providers. And finally, here's a man sneezing into a trombone. You're not very good at it. Nurse Betty is off to see the Spice Girls this week and has therefore been listening to their back catalogue on hard rotation. Therefore, I have been listening to their back catalogue on hard rotation, which is only fair after what I did last week with the Miriam Hyde disc. 
not a winner. It wasn't a winner. And uh, actually, I really enjoyed Melby's autobiography. You should all check it out. It's a decent read. But I was sat listening to When Two Become One the other day, and it made me think that no one talks about Mozart's Dissonance Quartet. Or rather, they only talk about one of the dissonances, and I think there's three. Rather than When Two Becomes One, this is When One Dissonance Becomes Three. Analysis. Mozart's Dissonance Quartet is confusingly part of a set called the Haydn Quartets. Wolfgang wrote these six quartets and dedicated them to the then Alpha Papa, world-leading composer and last great musician who was employed like a butler, Joseph Haydn. From the same set as The Hunt, which you talked about last week at Wigmore Hall, Tim, the works were really fretted over by Mozart. He spent six weeks slaving over these, and he went so far as to ask Haydn to be their father. Possibly, probably, because Mozart was having some real daddy issues at the time with his old man Leopold, another shared characteristic with Scary Spice. The final quartet of this set got called The Dissonance. Listen out for the fourth note of this piece, and I'm sure you'll get why. That chord is pretty radical stuff in 1785. Let's hear it again. Rad. 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 The cello pedal, the repeated note that we just heard, is a bit like Gilbert Ryle's wink theory. He thought that a wink is a very ambiguous human gesture and requires context to understand whether it's flirtatious, involuntary, secretive, humorous, or anything else. That pedal C is first heard open and ambiguous by itself. It could be major, it could be minor, a flirt or a secret. Then we add the A-flat in the viola. Weird. Yes, less flirty, I think. We'd expect something to define whether it was C major or C minor. Instead, we're now thinking that that C was a bluff. Then the E-flat comes in in the second violin. Maybe the wink is a twitch. And now we've got a Yanni or Laurel situation. Who are Yanni or Laurel? Yeah, uh, it was the big scandal of Twitter 2018, and it was whether this sound file... Laurel. ...sounded like the word Yanni or Laurel. I think I quite clearly hear Laurel, but apparently from the 500,000 people who replied on Twitter, it was 53% Yanni and 47% Laurel. The C A-flat E-flat chord is just as divisive. Is it this chord waiting to happen? C minor with a little viola appoggiatura to add glisten, or is it actually an A-flat major chord waiting for the bass to move down? Either way, no one is expecting the first violin chord. Red. Mozart does make it resolve eventually, obeying the rules of 18th century harmonic fashion, but the whole opening is a confounding of expectation and is full of these fruity dissonances. And that's where most analysis stops. A guy called Weber wrote 30 pages on that opening. But I think there's another dissonance at work here, Tim. Dissonance 2. The dissonant contrast between the minor, gritty introduction and the buoyant, jolly remainder of the first movement. It's a real huh moment for audiences as it goes from three time to four time, minor to major, slow to fast, all at once. See what you think.
Often projected onto this minor major contrast is Mozart's Masonic faith. I mean, is it a faith? I don't know. I, I mean, sure you don't know, Tim, but you know all the handshakes, don't you? Mm. Apparently there's a really big emphasis on the balance and fight between darkness and light within that particular organisation. And Mozart's quartet can be seen as coming out of the dark and into the light between the introduction and the body of the work. Dissonance 2 is darkness to light. Now dissonance 3. Dissonance 3 is between expectation and reality. What would an 18th century audience have been expecting from a string quartet? Traditional quartets were dominated by the first violin, almost like a song or aria, with the lower three parts filling out the accompaniment, and this is where Haydn comes in. Joseph, locked up in Esterhazy, writing a symphony or string quartet every time the prince he worked for had guests come round, gradually developed the style, perhaps out of sheer boredom, to give the other parts something to do. Mozart was inspired by this, and the parts interact, imitating material throughout. A bit like this. to that opening cello pedal, it is pretty dissonant with what audience would have been expecting. The bass instrument, rather than the first violin, is introducing this crucial material. This caused so much confusion that in the second movement of the quartet, when a similar thing happens, cellos have an entry by themselves. Some editors have added in a first violin part, assuming Mozart had got it wrong, a typo. Their version, the version we're going to hear now, played by the National Youth Orchestra of Canada Quartet, thanks Mm. to them, sounds like this. So, so many dissonances. Three dissonances, Tim, all at once. That's why Mozart's a clever fella. Dissonant notes, dissonant sections, dissonant with societal norms. And, I think, pleasing to know that he had direct sources of inspiration like Haydn and had to work hard to emulate them. It's not all just lightning bolts in the head. Tim, we were a pair of Happy Rovers this week up at St John's Waterloo, a mile up the road, uh, listening to Southbank Symphonia. We were indeed. So for those of you that don't know what the Southbank Symphonia is about, they are a essentially an orchestral academy, if you will, founded in 2002 by Simon Over to provide graduate musicians with a springboard into the profession. And they're actually they're internationally recognised as a, like a leading orchestral academy and they welcome each year 33 graduate musicians to perform as part of an orchestra. Every place is free. And every player receives a bursary, and to date, nearly 500 musicians have gone through the play. Mm, and they program. keep coming back, actually, in concerts, so they'll bring back the class of 14 or someone mm. from 15 to play. So they recently were involved with that critically acclaimed, 
production of Amadeus at the National Theatre, which you went to go and see. It was really good. They played as part of Venus Unwrapped. They, they're going to on tour to Italy later this year. They do family concerts and workshops. And they work with some incredible people like Ben Gernon, the conductor of the BBC Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, and Antonio Papano came. So, I mean, that's really great training to just to understand what conductors like that want. So we went to this concert where they performed... What did they perform? It was the Klachtenacht. The Klachtenacht. Schoenberg. Early Schoenberg. 1899 Schoenberg. Yeah. Transfigured Night. Transfigured Night, which, of course, for those who don't know, is uh, based upon a poem in which a couple walk out into the woods and she has a dark secret which she has to tell her lover. Mm. She is pregnant with another man's child and he forgives her. And it's usually arranged for for as a sextet, a string sextet, but the version that we heard was for string orchestra, which I hadn't heard before. It's the only version I'd ever heard before. Well, there we go. Now, I think, uh, for me, the string sextet version I actually prefer because it gives it a tautness. Because each line is quite melodically ambitious, Yeah, there is a huge amount of key shifts, and I think having which is one player per part allows the group to breathe as one much more organically compared to a larger ensemble where it just feels a little bit flabby at times. Now, whether that's because the Southwick Symphonia had perhaps not rehearsed it enough and they weren't as tight as they could have been, that might have been what it was. That's really true. I do enjoy the... There's lots of wonderful piano playing um, from the Southwick Symphonia in that concert, but also the writing. And uh, the piano you can achieve with a bigger string section i think is more miraculous than with a sextet it's, it's just, more velvety isn't it it's, yeah it's like that kind of haze the mist mm. can it feels like it's diffused over a bigger area which is better for the wooded setting the twilight in which yeah. it was written for i suppose we heard it quite a long time before twilight it was six o'clock on a summer's day this one of their rush it. hour concerts so, and how did that feel it felt like it was more difficult to sit down and concentrate on a piece of classical music at six o'clock in the rush hour. Yeah, I just wonder actually if there's something in that, without the breath in the day that you would have just by it being a little bit later, you know, that breath of uh, getting home, put your bags down, whatever it is, and then you go back out. I felt like it took me a little while to get into the, yeah, to get into that focused mindset. Uh, but Transfigured Night felt like quite good repertoire to do that because it demands focus and it sort of in its transformational quality leads you on a journey so you no matter where you start you will end up in a slightly different place by the end absolutely and it set us up quite nicely for the second piece and final piece on the program which was Sasson symphony number no. two it was actually really nicely introduced by joel roberts playing french horn uh and he he tried quite hard to convince and make a link between the transfiguring uh, of the Schoenberg and the transformational quality that the Sasson had played in his career as this was like a moment where his life fell apart which was very nice of Joel trying but I, it, it was a better introduction than the piece deserved. It doesn't sound like it was written when it was. It sounds I mean he was a young man, he was 24 when he wrote yeah. it, he said it, but it feels like a piece of Mendelssohn or a piece something uh, something early 19th century to me anyway. I yeah. Don't. I think that the beginning of the second movement was impressively played. And, that you know, there was some really good stuff going on in there um, from the ensemble and from Karen Hendricks, the conductor. But it wasn't 
it's not a great piece of music. It's the reason why no one knows it, mm. right? The uh, canon is an exclusive club for for some good reasons. Sorry to yeah, and later on in the episode, you can hear Tim talking to a couple of the players about what they're getting out of being in Symphonia. After last week's catastrophe, I kind of went looking for something I knew I'd enjoy. So apologies if this is a bit of an unremitting eulogy in praise of the orchestral music of Jonathan Dove, the new release from Orchid Classics. He was on my mind anyway, as he's just done a project as part of the Salisbury International Arts Festival with fan of the pod and cello boss, Brownie Moody. Hi, Brownie. No, you'll be listening. So I I just went and got this disc because I knew I'd love it. And then I loved it. Red. How about we come up with some things, specifics, that you loved? Okay. Well, right from the opening of the disc, I think you really feel like you're in it. Uh, The first track that we heard a little bit earlier is called Run to the Edge, and I really think it's a banger. It's the sort of um, short ride in a fast machine, too, but somehow less American. Rad. John Adams' piece starts with a woodblock solo, whereas Run to the Edge starts with a snare drum, and it just really snaps you right into what's going on and then you get these woodwind syncopations bits of brass and as a way to start a disc it is absolutely cracking it really demands attention and it sets momentum for the rest of your listening experience it also encapsulates a lot of what is positive about all of the disc so as an introduction to dove's music it's a good start there's gorgeous orchestrational colors and gestures within that rhythmicized uh, landscape and lots of landmarks those gestures those big you know massive brass swell or something will give you a landmark in this fast pace. Footing into the work. And actually the motifs, the little melody fragments that he uses, are weirdly memorable in a way that I didn't think they would be on first hearing. I found myself whistling them. I think that combination of factors really helps make you realise that you're listening to proper Dove and not Dove-ish. We've, again, said lots of people or lots of things sound, oh, that sounds a bit like Jonathan Dove. Uh, Danny mm. Howard's Robin I'm Hood. Guilty of that regularly. Yeah, because he's a real touchstone, I think, for a lot of contemporary composers because he's so good. And just hearing the real thing, you can totally tell mm. tell the difference. And who's conducting on this disc? This is another little bonus. Tim Redmond is conducting. And uh, when I was a kid, he introduced me and, in fact, Brian Moody to Dove's music when he was conducting the Wiltshire Youth Orchestra, which uh, was kind of mad in its ambition to be trying to put on repertoire like that. But it was a really smart thing to do because now you got a whole generation of players who are invested in contemporary British music, people who are interested in contemporary British music. I think he does a really great job with the BBC Philharmonic. The ensemble is super tight throughout, and that's so imperative in repertoire like this, because if it start to come apart, then you've lost all the interaction between those different cross rhythms. Mm. And I can just see in my mind's eye, he does all these sort of wrist flicks and kind of shoulder shimmies, 
that was so confusing to us as kids when we'd be just doing like Tchaikovsky 6 or something because we didn't know how to read that. We'd just been raised on uh, someone doing a pattern of four and he would be there swirling away. I mean, it obviously doesn't confuse the BBC Philharmonic. What it does is it draws out of them real dance in this music and you could enter all the the complicated parts that Dove writes into you know, a very good synthesizer and with good samples, you could make something that sounds convincingly orchestral but what i don't think you'd ever get would be that sense of dance and that freedom and group phrasing and i think tim redmond totally gets it out of the orchestra i think he sounds as good as anyone in this repertoire Mm. so what's the standout track on the disc i think it's her jockey which is not a word i'm sure i'm pronouncing right but it's a, a sort of secular cantata or like mega aria for countertenor and orchestra and it's about the destruction of a medieval japanese city Mm, which okay. isn't something you hear every day. It's sort of natural disasters come and attack this city. A dragon. Well, no, natural disasters tend. Oh, okay. Dragons, of course, not natural. As far as we know. Yeah, well, I was going to say. Her jockey is exceptional in contemporary repertoire, as far as I'm aware, in that just in terms of length, it's like 30 minutes long with countertenor versus full symphony orchestra, which, if you think a big aria in an opera might be seven minutes, eight minutes. Or a scene where you're singing with several other people might get up to 30 minutes, sure. But this is just one voice narrating for an extraordinary amount of time. And it's a titanic job for the American countertenor Lawrence Zazo, who has just got an extraordinary instrument. He mm. soars. Keeps I've going. Heard a, I heard you, you play me a little clip and I got very excited and yeah. And it goes all the way up to the top. And I'm just blown away by his performance, the orchestra's performance. And especially as I don't usually like these sort of through-composed narrative works not just doves uh elgar's quite guilty of this i think of just writing pieces that go from one thing to the the next thing and i find that quite boring Mm. uh or i'm not sure of how it feels like we've got to the end other than that the story has finished dove is exceptional in this i think in that he creates orchestral timbres and stuff that we return to towards the end of the work to give it a sense of closure Mm. and it's also a testament to zazo's singing the way that he really soars in the middle gets us to a high point and then winds us down towards the end for the sake of balance is there anything that you would want to criticize on the disc uh well maybe a possible drawback for some listeners not me personally is that it's quite a similar aesthetic and vibe across the disc i think people would complain of that with this kind of repertoire but then they'd happily listen to a whole load of mozart symphonies or palestrina polyphony i think it's just consistently brilliant composer fact file jonathan dove Born 18th of July, 1959. Both of his parents were architects. His breakthrough came when writing Figures in the Garden, 1991, a wind serenade to celebrate the bicentenary of Mozart. Has written several operas about historical figures, including Buzz Aldrin, Princess Diana, and Karl Marx. The dove is traditionally a sign of peace and reconciliation. Aged 14, he met Simon Rattle, then only 19, whilst playing with London School's Symphony Orchestra. The two would collaborate years later on the community opera Monster in the Maze. There are over 300 species of doves worldwide. One of his favourite poets is Emily Dickinson. They migrate to Northern Africa. Lives in Bethnal Green, East London. Often includes amateurs in his community operas. Monster in the Maze features 350 performers. He once said...
as promised, we've got Tim's interview with Rachel Maxey, the viola player, and Tim Keasley, the oboe player, to talk about their experience as members of Southbank Symphonia and what they thought of the concert that we attended. Anyway, Tim Keasley, oboe player in the Southbank Symphonia. Thank you very much for having a chat with You're me. Better, yeah. Can you tell me a bit about the South American Symphonia, how you got involved, how long have you, you've been a part of them and what they've been doing for you? Yeah, um, so South Bank Symphonia has been going for about 17 years and is uh, an opportunity for people who've recently left music college to play in an orchestra and with the same group of people every week for about a year. Um, I have been involved with it. The process of applying takes a bit longer than I would you would like <laughs> but um, um, you do an application then you do an um, audition and then you have an interview because as well as it being an opportunity for people who play it's also um, they're really keen to find people who are um, keen to kind of push their comfort push out of their comfort zone and that kind of thing so for example this morning we did like a like a dance workshop and obviously that would make some people want the ground to swallow them up but um, <laughs> not, so they, you. not me no <laughs> but, um, so they just want people who are like going to be up for it and not be like oh my gosh this is awful mm. um, and it, do you feel like you've developed a lot since you've been part of it because you think it's been really good for you yeah so. I've really really enjoyed um, I think play it seems quite mundane but just playing with the same people week after week makes such a big difference because any kind of anxiety you have about sort of the transition from basically just being in a box by yourself practicing yeah. and then just being like oh I, w I wonder if I'm any good and then like yeah. all the anxiety that you might carry with that mm. very quickly you just shed that because you're amongst friends eventually but also mm. just doing a, con a concert or two every week mm. is brilliant medicine for that and you were in music college before right yeah so, where were you, were you at? I was at the Royal Academy of Royal Music, Academy. Formative years. Did you enjoy yourself there? Was it? Um, I was it sort of enjoyed myself. I yeah. was. I went to university before I went to music college, and um, to start with, I was suddenly a bit like, "This is prison," <laughs> because like it's literally just like a building full of lots of like individual cells that people that go and lock themselves yeah. in for a very long time. <laughs> so um, I found it a bit boring <laughs> at times. Yeah. But um, this is so much more creative, and mm. yeah, I've really, really enjoyed my time here because I think leaving music college, I was just a bit like. I don't really know if I want to do this anymore, but it's been such a brilliant opportunity to realise that I actually really do want mm. to do it. And final thing I wanted to ask is is the last piece that you guys played today, the only piece that you played in, yeah. Yeah. which was the Sanson's Second Symphony, which yeah. I haven't heard before. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts on the piece? Because I, I don't know it at all. I'm intrigued what to see are what my thoughts on the piece? Um, so I must admit, I've only been in like two rehearsals, so I've only, it's quite fresh for me Initial as well. impressions. Um, <laughs> moments of it are quite trite, <laughs> but, um, but it's also quite fun, like, it's quite fun, it's like very light. It is light, uh, isn't it? Yeah, very yeah, that's light. That's what I was yeah. thinking. <laughs> Philadelphia light. But, um, but I had a great time, I enjoyed it. And I also have a really nice solo bit, which keeps me interested, because otherwise it's just lots sort of oboe two filling in chord moments, yeah. but there's a beautiful Corangli solo in the second movement. Which was a lovely thing to play. So. Oh, it was a lovely thing to listen to. Thanks very much. <laughs> well, Tim Kizzy, thank you very much for speaking to us. Great. Thank pleasure. you. Red. Rachel Maxey, you are a viola player in the South Bank Symphonia. Yeah. And you've just been taking part in this lovely concert, which I've been watching with the... So can you tell me a bit about the Klasenacht, firstly? Is that the first time you've that played it? That is the first time I've ever played it, What yeah. did you make of it? It's quite a journey to play it, because even just preparing it is such a journey, because it's so difficult, and all the parts are so complicated. It's difficult to put together and it's difficult to play by yourself. 
and we haven't had that much rehearsal time. So even before going on, everyone was like, we got this. It's definitely like you just have to support each other yeah, yeah. and go on and do it. But it's definitely, you, I guess when you listen to it, it's got this massive arc. Mm. And at the end, you're just like, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so beautiful. Yeah. Were you aware of the, because it's a sextet originally, is it Yeah, not? I've never played that. that. No, but apparently there's amazing recordings. Like, mm. Yanni Nelson has an amazing recording of it. So everyone's yeah. been raving about it. it yeah, because that, that, that's the only version that I'm familiar. So I, I, yeah. it, was all, it was new for me to hear it as a string, uh, as a string orchestra. Yeah, it was wonderful. It so because really there's two really viola well. parts, and I was playing the first viola part, mm. and there's meant to be in this orchestral arrangement at least four desks of first violas. Right. So it's just shows, it's meant to be kind of six equal parts fleshed out, but um, in South Bank we only have four viola players total, so it was two per part, mm. and. Um, so I think that would have made a quite big difference, actually, right. having that strength in each section, because yeah, then you have the equivalent need. of being like a solo, mm. um, like equal solo players. Mm. But. Well, you guys pull it off beautifully. Anyway. Oh, thank you. <laughs> how, how long have you been in the South Bank Symphonia since November? Since February. February. So it runs February to November. That's it. So, it's, yeah. yeah, it's a slightly weird annual calendar. Yeah, yeah. And you were at music college before that, right? I was, yeah. I graduated in June. So would you say, how would you say that you've developed in the last sort of few months that you've been part of this photo? Has it... Has it been really useful for you to be in the sort of professional, quasi-professional world, or...? Um, I think it's the relentlessness of it, learning so much repertoire, and doing slightly weird things. They have these concert labs, mm. so we had one where we were all... We were doing Beethoven's Eroica, and we were all spaced out in, this, in the oval space, mm. and the audience could walk in between us, and that was just a really different experience that you don't get if you're freelancing mm. orchestras, because they don't do those things, or it takes special orchestras and special projects to do them so it was really nice to do some different things and you you had your fencing workshop was that yesterday <laughs> or what was it uh, that was on tuesday and yeah. what was that about so as a a woman a very lovely woman she's given us two workshops now and it's just about being mentally prepared you know in that moment where you're the fencer in the middle of this massive arena commonwealth games olympic games how do you not let that pressure get to you and how can those principles be applied to classical music yeah and sort of it's really interesting, all the language is the same, like they talk of it as a performance, even when you're fencing, same as for us playing. So it was just really nice because she was so open about her journey and she missed out on going to the Olympic Games. She was like, they have picked two people and she was the third person. So that's massive disappointment and sort of for us learning how to cope with, there's a lot of disappointment. Yeah. You only see in classical music, you only see the success, but behind the success is all the thousands of failures yeah, <laughs> so that was really refreshing to just be able to focus on that and as a group to be able to talk about it with each other and everyone be like yeah I had this really rubbish experience where I failed this audition or I had this really terrible performance where I was really out of my comfort zone everyone has exactly the same stories and it's really leveling and it just yeah brings everyone closer together and, and what's next for the Southwick Symphonia what, what have you got on yeah. I know we're doing Sibelius 5, oh, we're, and we're doing Strauss Metamorphosen. Oh, wonderful. So they love yeah. to give us big string projects here. Yeah, so that would be another one. That's fantastic. Yeah. Because those are two real big string Yeah, yeah really wow. meaty. So I'm really looking forward to that. Amazing. Yeah. Oh, well, good luck with all that. And Rachel, thank you very much for speaking to me. It's thank very you. Kind. Finish!
coming up over the next few weeks, we're actually in the middle, in, in the throes of a bunch of operatic festivals. We've got Garsington, Glyndebourne, the Grange Festival, Albra's going on at the moment as well. So pick and choose from a number of fabulous things that are happening. If you are going to go to Garsington, perhaps pick Don Giovanni or The Bartered Bride, uh, rather than Verdi's and Ballo Mascarat, which I find to be a particularly absurd bit of storytelling and don't enjoy very much. Mm, coming up this week, specifically on the 12th Wednesday, it's Philippine Independence Day, of course, but at Cadogan Hall, we are going to hear Music for Syria, 90 minutes to, ma- to raise £90,000, which is music, readings and entertainment, hosted by Petrock Trelawney. Yeah, big fans, to raise money for the Hands Up Foundation it's going to feature Mitsuko Uchida, Simon Kimiside, and the Betjeman Poetry Prize winner of 2017, Amina Abdul whose poem C will be performed as a song, especially composed for the evening by the composer Alex Wolf. A really good cause, so get down there if you can. Thursday the 13th at the Royal Festival Hall, the Philomonia, under Titus Engel. Great we'll name. Play a great name. We'll be doing works by contemporary Czech composer Martin Smolka followed by a live screening of Metropolis with a soundtrack by the German Weimar composer Gottfried Huppertz under Eskapek Sun, who's yeah, great. Yeah, and Metropolis is a really great film if you haven't seen it before. Fritz Lang at his absolute best. Friday the 14th, the multi-story orchestra with the Harris Academy Peckham Orchestra are at Peckham Rye Multi-Story Car Park, their home ground. They're playing Petrushka. And a piece by Weekly called Sky Dances. Mm. Saturday the 15th, which is UK National Beer Day, the Birmingham Symphony Hall will be hosting Chinike under Wayne Marshall, performing contemporary Canadian composer Stuart Goodyear's Cat Lou, a Caribbean suite for piano and orchestra. It's also the birthday of Grieg, Julia Fisher, Ice Cube, Courtney Cox, Simon Callow. Mm. Sunday the 16th, we will be attending a concert as part of the Oldbreath Festival. I don't know if we're the feature, though. No, I think it no, might in fact be Adrian Brendel playing cello, Joanna McGregor on the piano, and Marta Fontal's Simmons singing as a mezzo-soprano. They're doing a programme of Britain and Bridge, and that probably should be further up the bill than the fact that we're going to be there. Mm. A little bit later on, looking ahead into the month, on Wednesday the 19th, there will be a talk at the Royal Academy of Music called Hearing Gender. Yep, this is with Jam Oral, friend of the pod and fab viola player, talking about different ways that we hear and impose gender on classical music. So if you enjoyed last week's analysis, get down there. And then following up on that kind of theme, Friday the 21st, we've got Recentered, a concert by the Bloomsbury Quartet featuring our viola Rachel Maxey from earlier. They're placing Elizabeth McConkie as the feature in their programme and having people like Ralph Vaughan Williams dotted around her as they feel that often women composers are given short thrift, only plopped at the beginning to fulfil bit of a tick box so they're trying to recenter women composers as the most important part of their concert program A couple of quick thank yous. We just want to say 
A very big thank you to the National Youth Orchestra of Canada for allowing us to use that recording. And for writing such polite emails. Also, a thank you to Orchid Classics for lending us a little bit of the Jonathan Dove disc. Mm, and finally, to Tim Keasley, oboist of the Southbank Symphonia, and Rachel Maxey, violist of the Southbank Symphonia, for having a lovely little chat with me. Lovely. <laughs> 